He grew up wearing a little Caps jersey, dreaming of lifting up the Stanley Cup over his head. Then he actually worked his tail off to make it a reality in a Caps jersey. He just fell short. Now, finally, he's lived out that dream. Jeff Halpern, D.C. native, little cap, big cap, Stanley Cup champ. He is my guest today. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Capital Building Podcast, part of Blue Wire Podcast. So pleased to be part of that company and excited to help build the brand, as well as my YouTube page in partnership with that podcast, Capital Building. Please subscribe, write a review, leave a rating, especially on the podcast. It helps get the word out and excited to start releasing more and more of these podcasts throughout uh, the next coming weeks and months. Jeff Halpern is fascinating and fun to talk to because he's literally no different than you or your kids. He grew up in the DC area and was dreaming of one day playing for the Caps. And he actually got to do it. Imagine that. And he has a great story coming up of where he was and what he was doing when Pat LaFontaine scored that goal in the Easter epic to beat the Caps and how he once kind of threw that in Bob Mason's face. And you will hear that did not go well. But he went through all of that as a fan, just like every other Caps fan. He just got to actually graduate from the Little Caps and become a Washington Capitals player and just never got to lift the Stanley Cup above his head. And that is, you know, the ultimate. And that's what every uh, little player dreams about doing one day. But he did get to live out the dream as an assistant coach now at the Tampa Bay Lightning. And I compared that for him. I compared it to the 2017 disappointment for the Caps, losing to the Penguins again, and then coming back and having to get over that. And it was the – that period was a dark, tough time in Caps history, more so than people on the outside ever had any idea. Um, and Tampa went through that. All these playoff disappointments for the Lightning of this kind of core group leading up to the sweep by Columbus – and then the fallout, where as he'll hear him say, they all knew that the pressure was on, that jobs were on the line. And it's actually pretty funny because he talked about just flat out avoiding the GM, the ownership, just not answering phone calls. And I think, again, anyone can relate to that, right? When your boss calls and you know it's because you did not live up to expectations or what was expected of you that day, uh, I don't want any part of that. I'll just, I'll listen to the voicemail and I will deal with that later. And that's what the entire coaching staff for the Lightning had to go through after the loss to Columbus. But they came back hardened and determined to play a different game, a game with some snarl, a game with some anger. It's exactly like the Caps in 2018. And uh, now Jeff Halpern is and forever will be a Stanley Cup champion. So here's my conversation with DC's own Jeff Halpern. Do you remember the first time you had the dream of lifting the Stanley Cup over your head? Has it just been as long as you could possibly remember? Uh, yeah, I, I would say, I know I had like a, a toy Stanley Cup I got in some sort of hockey game set. And um, but I think any hockey player, it's like you get the little trophy at the, you know, at the Christmas tournament. And then, uh, so obviously that's the, that's the biggest dream. So when you actually got to live out that dream, did it live up to what you were hoping or is it even better? Cause, cause every fan, right. Watch that great promo when it was like, you know, the, the no words, yeah. every player was asked about it and they just couldn't even formulate sentences. Did it feel that way? 
Uh, I, well, it's, it's almost like you don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be easier uh, with skates on, kind of just lifting up, skating around, that's it. But um, I, I don't even really remember doing it. I just uh, kind of lifting it up and, and giving it a kiss. And I, I think the biggest thing for me there was, was thanking the players and kind of giving my respect to the players because, you know, when you're, when you're coaching, you're, you're putting yourself well, – you're trying to put the players in a, a position to win. And so really, like, the, the credit goes to those guys. Like you said, it was a dream to lift the cup, but it was, I, I wouldn't have been able to do it without those guys. How different is it when you're a coach? Um, because you're, yeah, obviously it's your game plan. You're working with these guys all year long. But did, did you feel a difference or, or I don't want to say a disconnect, but is it different? There's a, yeah, there's a complete difference. Um, I, I wish I won one as a player. I, I we, you know, never really got close as a player. But I, you see the guys start battling through injuries and, you know, you expect they're not going to play that game and all of a sudden they're playing. And I, I, I think as, as coaches, like, we, we take a lot of pride in putting a game plan. We, we work with the players throughout the year and all that stuff. But, like, I, I, I didn't make Braden Point or Art Staff didn't make Braden Point the player he is or Kucherov or Edmund. They, they, they've, they've got a lifetime of work with youth hockey coaches and, and into their professional lives. Um, we're trying to put a plan in place. There's always friction between players and coaches. Is this <laughs> going to work or not? And so to kind of sit back at the end of it and watch the, the guys, the players kind of take that joy. Uh, I know for me, like it, as, as a coach, it gave, that's the ultimate joy as a coach is seeing your, you, the people that you kind of march out onto the ice uh, have success and how happy they were. So I, I, I shared in that happiness, but to answer your question for, for sure, it's a different feeling. Um, is being a coach, is that relationship with a player – what's been the biggest difference for you? Because like you said, there's always that friction, right? There's always the player who's like, I know how to do this. Yeah. Why are you telling me to do it this way? You live that life as you live this life now. Do you, you know, what's that like? One of the biggest mistakes as a coach too, you watch that video, if you pause it and pause it and pause it every split, you're like, Oh my God, how come they couldn't make that play? And sometimes players will be like, do you remember how fast this game is? It's amazing, <laughs> it's amazing how often they make the right play. Uh, I, when I stopped, I always wanted to get into coaching. I did, I did some media stuff when I was done. And I, I said, in, I didn't want to be in media because I didn't want to criticize a player. Um, and I wasn't in their shoes at that time. It didn't feel right to me. So I wanted to, I wanted to coaching and it's, that's even more elevated. And your biggest job really is uh, with today, I think with anyone, they want an explanation for why, you know, we used to say, in my generation, coach would tell you to run through a wall and you go do it, it with no questions asked. And now they're, now they're smart enough to be like, well, why would I go throw my head through that wall? <laughs> but you, you almost you have to have data and analysis and your analytics team behind you and say, okay, we want you to do this and this is the reason why and here's examples. And, um, and at the same time, when they're not doing that and you're confident in what you're saying, you, you have to be firm. And so I, I think that's one of the biggest things is getting into those confrontations, making sure your point is across, still giving them an explanation but to make sure that your, your voice is the final voice, so to speak. So were you a guy who just ran through the wall because that's what the coach said? Because you're a pretty smart guy. I feel like you'd be a type of guy to be like, 
whoa, 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 I'll do it, but why I, am I doing it? I'd like, I'd like to say a little bit. I remember I've talked to Dean Evanson a, a couple times, and I think his first – I was actually told this from someone else, but I can I, – I get it. His first PK meeting he gave when he came to Washington, I don't remember, but apparently put my hand up and was like, uh, I, don't, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> so I, I actually <laughs> – and my name's Jeff, and I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> he, he, he remembers that. I, I, when we were co- he was coaching, I forgot where, I think Milwaukee, and I called him when we were in Syracuse, we were going to play the same team. First thing I said is, like, you know, I apologize for everything I ever did as, as a player. Um, but I question a lot of things, but I learned probably middle of my career later on. It, wasn't, it doesn't do the team any good when you start questioning things. You, you have questions, the next guy has questions, and you're, you're on different pages. And I, you know, guys like Ron Wilson, they, they were great coaches early in my career. You didn't, you didn't have to question anything. They, they, they put a plan in place. It was great. And, um, but that, that was, that was in me early on. As I got older, I said, just, just shut up and go, go, go try to run through the wall again. Do you wish players were more like that now? Or do you appreciate that Kucherov might need to be handled differently than someone well, else? Well, the one th- Cooch is a, he's the smartest player on our team. And when, when you go to him with anything, uh, you better be ready. Like sometimes our, our head coach says, show, uh, show Cooch that clip. I say, I got to watch this 10 times before I know what's going on behind him, on the side of him, because he sees it all. And I, I always say, it's no different than your kids. I, I'd love for my kids to, you know, have great manners when, they, when they're eating at, at the table. It doesn't always work that way. And you have to raise your voice at times and with players it's kind of the same thing like you're again they're fighting for what they believe in you're fighting for what you believe in ultimately it's that it has to be one voice so you do have those confrontations and you have to be comfortable with with any of those players um to to get into it with them you know it's funny the way you guys went about this because it's very similar to the caps the caps loss in 2017 to pittsburgh um they came back so uh, they were they were dangerously cl- close to splintering apart. That was the the low point I think of all the disappointments um, that they had to get over. And you know, revisionist history for Caps fans they forget how close Barry Trotz came to getting fired a couple of times during that 2018 run because he was letting them sort of heal. You guys were coming off this kind of major embarrassment in the players in the playoffs last year and then came back with this renewed sense of like, we've got to commit to doing this the right way or we're going to end up falling short again. Um, did you see the maturation of swallowing that embarrassment, that disappointment and, and sort of building towards, okay, we've learned the hardest lesson now. Now it's time to utilize it. Um, I, I, I think we did. Uh, I know when we came back for training camp, as, even as a coaching staff, we said, okay, we're not going to talk about the Columbus series. We're going to move on. We're going to turn the page. And we must have talked about it 50 <laughs> times in the first day. We're not going to talk about the Columbus series, but do you remember this and that? And I, I think like the player, it, I mean, it, it scarred our coaching staff and the players. Like you can say, yeah, we're, we're going to get over it. But uh, I can look back on it now. We were not over it. And we actually started the season – we, we limped into the season a little bit. Like we, we weren't a, a really strong team. And I think it was we, – we went to Sweden, and it was – again, it was mostly the guys, and they'll, they'll point to that trip. 
but if not more than anything, like that group, especially with the new guys with Pat Maroon, Kevin Shattenkirk, and some of those guys, um, they started gelling as a group. We had a little bit more of a snarl coming out of that. Like the guys looked up to their big brother, so to speak, like Luke Shen and Maroon. All of a sudden, they were going into games, especially against the Caps, who's a you know physical, tough team, and they were. I think they were starting to get real proud of matching up against those type of teams and being able to stand their ground. And that, I think from that trip, the identity of our team changed from the year before and, and it started to take shape. And so I, there's not a moment uh, where, I, where I could say, hey, we were over that Columbus series. It just started gradually happening. It jump started from that Sweden trip and it went from there. And I, I, I wasn't in that Washington locker room, obviously, in, in 2018 or following until they played Tampa in the conference finals. But from afar, you, like that team, you, you felt the same thing. Like they, when they got over that hump against, against Pittsburgh, they were, they were rolling and they were a machine. And uh, I think there are a, little, a lot of similarities. And there was also a feeling, and I've heard, you know, the stories came out afterwards of they were pissed off too. Like they were like, it ends this year. Like we're done losing to Pittsburgh. We're done making the excuses, but we've got to, play with that snarl because the Caps sort of had the same reputation that the Lightning had. It's all talent and it's all on the perimeters and we're just going to score more goals and out-talent you guys. And that doesn't ultimately win. And, you know, Alan May always used to say, like, if you're going to try and win a cup playing on the outside and playing pretty hockey, we're all going to be sitting by the bar talking about the Stanley Cup final together and not covering it. When – okay, so there wasn't that moment where you, they got over but when did you realize – this is the brand of hockey. They're pissed off enough now that they're ready to commit to the right game. Yeah. Well, and remember, um, our trade deadline, we picked up uh, Blake Coleman and Barkley Goodrow and Zach Bogosian. Brilliant then, moves. Brilliant there, moves. There, there was the, the, the pause for COVID. And so you look back at that 2018 team, like o Ovi's really the leader of that team in every way. And when he starts running guys over, you could see – Teams get excited. Everybody's got a little bully in them. And when you've got the biggest kid on, in the, you know, on the playground, you, you, you stand up, you get a little bit tougher. And so I think they, they embrace that identity, the Caps. They can beat you on the scoreboard, and if not, they're going to beat you up physically. And so going into this playoffs, we had a, a round-robin game against Washington. That was, that was a really good game. That was a physical game, some fights. And we, we looked at that game as a – okay, we're going to see Washington down the line. And that was a really good game for us because of how we match up physically against, against everyone. And that matchup never happened. When we played Boston in the second round, uh, guys like Coleman and Goodrow and Yanni Gore and, and most guys Maroon, we made it our game plan to try to hit Boston as much as possible, get pucks behind their D. And, and you could see the, even the skill guys, they they wanted to be a part of it. They loved seeing it. They loved how, how much we were wearing Boston down. And I think from that series and the beginning of that series on, that, that became our team's identity. We were going to score goals, but we were going we to physically uh, wear teams down at the same time. It's so funny, right, how when you always think back, because you, you think back to the – again, and we're relating this to the Caps a lot, but Devontae Smith-Pelly, Lars L, or Brett Connolly, those were the guys that – you know, Chandler Stevenson made a, you know, a big play that on any cup run, generally, I feel like teams end up talking about the Barkley Goodrows and the Pat Maroons and those guys almost more than the superstars because superstars are always going to be the superstars. But if you don't get that 
third and fourth line contribution from those guys who are willing to go into a corner and win a puck when it seems unwinnable. And it's the same plot line. It seems like every single year. It's amazing. I, I, I always tell the story when Jordan Tutu used to be on the ice, like you did all of a sudden he was, he was killing guys. And then Nashville, they made a big mistake. They started giving out these whistles. So when Tutu would go on the ice, they, they, they blow the whistles. And as an opposing player, you knew, <laughs> so, okay, that guy's on the ice, get out of his way. And, and for Ovi, Ovi used to, I think he still does. He had those neck, those chain necklaces. So when you're playing against him, you'd, you'd hear those. It was like a cowbell. You'd hear oh, those, you really could hear it on the ice. And you got, you got out of the way. <laughs> you, could, you could hear those chains coming at you. And, you know, Ovi takes those three steps and he kills guys. And I think, you know, Tom Wilson's the name that you didn't mention with that group. But you have right. Ovi and Wilson. And these are big guys coming to hurt you. <laughs> and I think, I think in 2018 that was – that was a big uh, identity of that team for us. I, you know, we look at the, our line, Goodrow, Coleman, and Gord. And Gord's not the biggest guy, but they, they're, the way they forecheck, there's um, – I compare it to – if you've seen The Lion King, there's those three hyenas, and they get the <laughs> kind of squirrely. Like, they're looking in different directions. And that was kind of those three guys. Like, they were just crazy enough and stupid enough to, to scare teams to death. And, and I use that in the best, like crazy and stupid in, in a good way, oh, yeah. but they, they, they stepped on the ice and you could see other players kind of roll their eyes. Like they knew it was going to be a hard shift. And so there are the, that parallel with Ovi and Wilson and that group with Goodrow and Coleman and Arden. Yeah. It's, um, it's funny to, not to belabor this, but I, I, before my caps gig, I did the pre and post game with the Islanders and this was Tavares's first year, so they were sort of just establishing themselves. They're a pretty bad team at that point, but a locker room of great guys, just super, super guys. And I remember standing at Madison Square Garden with Dean Chenouth, who was an assistant coach in the team. And I don't remember who they had just called up, but we're standing and talking. And I said, uh, "He's a good kid." He goes, "Yep, great guy." And I was like, and I kind of looked at him. And I was like, "Yeah, it's a room full of great guys." He's like, "Yep, I'd want any one of them to date my daughter." I was like. Probably need a, few, need a few assholes in there. He goes, need a bunch of assholes in there. Yeah, need a bunch of those guys. Like, those guys, those crazy guys who are just willing to, to go where other people aren't, that's, the, you know, that's everything in hockey. Yeah, and they, the one thing with, the, with playing in front of no fans, you could hear everything. And so, they, like, there's a lot of talk on the benches, maybe because of that, because the players could hear each other. And so – the group we had, like it, it, they were relentless on certain players on other teams, and you're you're so, so you're like, putting your head down because you, you don't want to get into it as a coach, but you're you try not to laugh. And they were, uh, I wish they had that stuff mic'd up. I, I I'm sure they did. I would have loved for that. That's what I was it, hoping. Forget the crowd noise. I just want to hear the players. It was ruthless. Like um, I, I won't even say it, but it was it was enjoyable as a coach. You can hear everything going on on the ice and. And like you said, we, we had a lot of guys that would, yeah, they, they would hurt you to win or they would do something to win. And it was, uh, it was, it helped the team. As a fan, when Stamkos came back onto the ice, you're like, oh, this is such a great story, right? The captain, the guy's been through so many injuries. When he scored that goal, I was like, are you kidding me? How does this happen? What did that do for the team? Which was already rolling. I mean, I, that team is going to win the cup, I, I think, regardless. But that moment just seemed to collectively lift everything. Yeah, and that—I mean—that was a big. That was game three. The series is tied one-one. 
And I think both teams, like you're starting to, it's been three rounds or three and a half rounds at this point, and, and the energy level has gone down. So I even remember just looking on the ice. You see a player like Stammer just on the ice in warm-ups, and, and there's an electricity to our team. And you look at the lineup, and you're like, well, you know, you, there's, there's that scoring on our fourth line. And so we started the game, we were up one nothing, and then he scores. And like you said, it was you, you, you can't believe it. It's one of those Derek Jeter kind of Michael Jordan. Right. Where it only happens to certain players. And um, the energy, I think he may have had one shift after that until that was it for him for the playoffs. But, you know, at, at the right time in the playoffs, sometimes you get a jolt of energy and it carries you for a game or two. And I, for us, it was, it was that. And it, it kind of got us over that hump for sure. Was, was it hard without the fans and without the, you know, either you're going to build off the excitement of a goal because of the fan energy in the building if you're at home or you guys pride yourselves on shutting up a fan base when you're on the road. Was it hard to – did you sense it was hard for players to manufacture or is I, it – No, yeah, I, I didn't at all because the first, uh, the first game of the playoffs was the Rangers-Carolina in that round-robin game. And so we were kind of uh, – we, you know, we got to that Toronto bubble, I think, guys have talked it was almost like a, a, a convention of those five teams that were there just they had the round robin but they were they were waiting for the playoffs so you turn on the rangers carolina there's fights right away that was oh, yeah. right away. you, you kind of realize it and so our game was no different like, when we started against you know boston washington philly we you know we had some really good games in that and that washington game was was one of the best of the whole playoffs as far as the atmosphere and you didn't notice it. They did a good job with the music and pumping in noise. And uh, I think the initial playoff, whatever it was, right away the guys were excited about playing. Were you concerned, though, as a coach before about could guys, you know, get going on their own? Yeah. Yeah. And we, we simulated three games in Tampa before we left. Like, we, we had a night nighttime game with music. And you can – I, I thought it went well, but you could see where it may have fallen flat. For whatever reason, the stage that the NHL built, like the the visuals of it, the noise, uh, it felt it felt like a, a a playoff atmosphere. And so, I you'd have to ask the guys. I don't think they ever felt like it wasn't that intense, or they weren't playing for those things. But I thought the NHL did a really good job of creating the best atmosphere possible. I heard a couple of stories, mainly on the spit and chicklets podcast about those you know the kind of country club guys were hanging out together um which sounded awesome because these guys never get to sort of hang out in a big place like that um as a coach were, was there any concern where you're like guys stop hanging out with the caps and by the pool and uh i heard maroon and Ovi were like having a way off to see who was heavier and no but like, focus We'll do like uh, you could do the research. I won't call anyone out, but uh, we, we had one player that was friendly with uh, Yaroslav Falak, and he wasn't playing; he was hurt. And uh, his we didn't know until after the fact, but he basically made it his job to make sure Halak was having a good time the whole whole time in the playoffs. And um, so, like there was, there's obviously there's time to fill and. There's only so much you can do, and that Toronto hotel was actually a beautiful hotel. But it was, yeah, some of the guys were able to hang out with other players on other teams, and a little, little bit of a nudge done. Make sure this guy's having a really good time. So um, there, there was a little of that. Um, again, going back to that 2018 year with 
with the Caps, Barry Trotz was in trouble. A couple of times, like as broadcasts, we were told, don't get too far away if we need to have an emergency broadcast here. Um, I don't know how close, you know, what you hear in the media and the rumors or whatever, but the pressure had to be on John Cooper and the staff and, you know, number of years of not getting there, you know, when does the seat start getting hot? I don't want to get into, did you guys feel it? But um, how much pressure did you guys carry yourselves and what makes him, he's a unique dude. He's, he's doesn't come across as the traditional NHL coach. So what makes him such an effective head coach? Well, for, for him, I, I think his, his confidence or like his connection with the players, it like the team kind of carries that onto the ice. So he walks into the rink every day. He's full of confidence. He's full of a certain swagger and the team carries over on that. Um, I, I think, I think going to, to your point, the one time I have not seen him have that was after obviously we lost against Columbus and, you know, our general manager came in, Steve Eiserman was still, uh, I think he'd stepped into an assistant general manager role at that time. But when they came in the room, you, including all of us coaches, you almost had that like dead man walking. <laughs> and, um, you know, you're, you're always proud of whatever work you're doing, whether you're a chef and you put out food or whatever, a podcast. And you, if, if you know it doesn't look good and your critics come in the room, it's, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable feeling. We all had it. You, you try not to pick up your phone at time, you know, those next couple of weeks. To, and so I'm sure, I'm sure there was discussion on what to do. Um, but I, I think if anyone was going to kind of pick himself up from that, it would be Coop and his confidence with, that he showed. And again, we, I don't know if it was uh, completely there at the beginning of the year, but him and the team kind of, picked up steam as we went and going into the playoffs. So you've been a part of this organization. You played there. You've been coaching there now. Um, <clears throat> what is it that's made it? Because you would not expect a, an NHL team in Tampa to be this sort of a model franchise for this long. How and why has it become such a well-run organization and a respected organization? Yeah. The, the ownership's great. I, I never played under Jeff Finnick. The ownership's great. And I don't, I don't mean it, in, mean it in the sense of like he just signs the checks and stays out of it. Uh, he, he cares a lot about the team, but he cares a lot about the community. He donates like fifty thousand dollars a game. Does it does a ton of charity work, and so the the community programs that he's helped develop, the hockey programs, the you know charitable uh, groups, it's just kind of built our team and our brand in the community, and I think the community responds because of it, and. Um, you know, youth hockey's grown. The, the the care of the people that that he's touched or the, the team has touched, it's it's helped grow hockey in this area. From you know going back to the '90s when it started to now, uh, it's developed that base and it's kind of taken steam with this ownership. What's your best memories of your times with the Caps? Uh, I I I think there's a lot of good moments, but. I, my best mo memories really like a, kind of so I'm proud of my, my dad worked down the street from, from the, you know, I don't know what it was called, the Verizon center uh, <laughs> at that point, but to be able to play an NHL game, look up, see your parents when my sister was in town to see her, 
that, that's a that's a pretty special feeling. Uh, and not, you know, a lot of times it's, it's looking at it from the bench. But I got good after a while. Like I could look at my dad on the bench and without even moving, kind of talk to him. And that that's that's pretty cool to be able to share uh, something you grew up your whole life with your parents and your sister. Um, you know, as as I grew in 2011. 12 season and being married and having our first child born that year um, to have just to have my family involved. There's, there's certain goals or certain teammates, certain times like that. But to be able to share that with my family was, was very special. So, I mean, you know, look, you could have played in Philly and your parents probably could have gotten there to a lot of games. Was it the fact that you were in your hometown? Like this was sort of what you had, if you could yeah, write I, I a mean, script. I, 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 I Grew up obviously a big Cavs fan and kind of shared those wins in lot like yeah, La Fontaine, all the all the Penguin series, uh, Rod Langway getting hurt going into the conference finals the one year. Um, Wait, do you remember I, where do you remember where you were, what you were doing when the La Fontaine goal? That was a hockey tournament in Phoenix, Arizona with the they're called the Americans at the time, but now the Little Caps. And uh, I remember we had a, a million things to do, like or at least to sightsee. We we're going to go to Grand Canyon, I think that day. But the the uh, the game went so long, we just stay in the room and watch until the end. And I saw I saw Bob Mason years later, and like I regret, I regret saying it to him. But somebody <laughs> introduced me to him. I said, like, "Oh man, you can stop that! <laughs> can stop that shot!" And I, I don't think I was the first guy to say that to him. I don't I don't think he appreciated it. Did you see like a look in his eye? You're like, "Oh no, uh, he might punch me right now." <laughs> yeah, there's another one. But I, I thought when I got to watch, I was like, "Okay, I'll I'll reverse the." Uh, I'll reverse this and be part of a team that wins it. And we played Pittsburgh my first year. We had on real team. I think we lost eight nothing in game one. So I was like, uh, it didn't go, that didn't go <laughs> to plan. But um, I, I took a lot of pride playing for the Caps, um, both, both stints. Uh, it was a team I grew up with. And I think when you first start playing, like the older guys that you meet, you're part of that organization, seeing younger guys like Brian Sutherby, Steve Eminger, Brian Wolsey still guys that I talk to all the time and to be part of that community um, or like that or that that alumni and that that organization it, it meant a lot to me I, I wish I could have won a cup as a player there um, but it, it didn't mean a lot to me so did it mean a lot to you because now you're in, <laughs> there's you're the coach and your your allegiances to your franchise you're, that's paying you and supporting your family but you know you're still a guy you're still a fan how happy were you for the organization in 2018? Well, I have to like not happy at all because people even that series, Tampa, Washington, say, "Aren't aren't you happy?" Uh, Caps won. It's annoying. <laughs> we're, right. we're, we're, like these are these are the guys that I some of the guys that I've coached in Syracuse and organization, and I even said as a player, as as soon as I left the first time as a player, like I. I never sat in my, my room and said, you know, rooting for the Caps while I played for Dallas or Tampa or L.A. Um, so, I, you know, now I'm, it's kind of full allegiance to Tampa. Like, I, I reached out to John Carlson and Backstrom and Ovechkin and those guys that, that I played with when they won to congratulate them. But I, I, I didn't feel a part of that. That wasn't, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't my team anymore. And so I – I thought it was neat. It, probably a lot of jealousy. Like it, seeing the parade in Washington was a visually was a, was an amazing thing, and it was like out of a movie. Um, but it it's kind of yeah. You move on. 
do you want to be a head coach next? Like, is what, what's the realistic sort of time frame that you want to do that? Yeah, I, I, I would like to be a head coach. I, um, I, I don't, I, there's never a path on how to do it, obviously. Um, at what level to start off or, or kind of when to, when to go that route. Uh, but it is something I, I would love to do. What is it about coaching that, that you love so much? I, I've always liked the teaching part of it. Um, so a lot of it has to do with the work done away from the games and in practice and kind of in the video room and the, the relationships you have with the players. Um, I think the biggest thrills I get is now is you work on something, whether it's individually or with a group like the power player or the whole team. And when that person or group has success and you're, you feel, <laughs> you feel like you're responsible uh, in some ways, not, uh, not, not uh, entirely, but when you feel like you've helped someone achieve their goal, there's a lot of satisfaction in that. And, um, I love the puzzle of the game, the puzzle of the strategy. Uh, to me, that, that keeps a lot of those competitive feelings alive. And, um, so I, a combination of all those things. I'll let you go. Like one or two more questions here, but you know, the caps won, right. And it like the black cloud, you know, the black cloud that has hovered over DC for a long time since the Redskins won back in the early nineties, the caps won, the Nats won, the mystics won. All of a sudden we were calling it the district of champions. It was pretty amazing here. Tom Brady gets to town. The bucks become relevant. The lightning win the Stanley cup, the rays are in the world series the hell did Tampa become the home of champions? Like, what's now, it like in the city? I know. Well, they got a T-shirt for everything now. So I right. thought they had that in 2018. But there's a T-shirt for every player and every team. And um, it's, it's, too, it's too bad that uh, the world is going through this. And, and it's too bad that these sports teams are doing as well as they are for the city of Tampa. Because not, not just economically, but just the – we had the parade, our, our boat parade, and if you saw that at all, I, I was shocked at just seeing people out. And I know. You don't, you don't see people watching the games at home and understanding what it means to them. So to see people uh, sharing that, it's, it's an unbelievable feeling. I, I wish the baseball community and the football community and the hockey could all, all share in what's going on right now, and I, I know at some point it will get to that. Um, but, it, you know, at the same time, it gives it – gives, uh, it gives this town a lot of joy, and uh, we're, we're, we're. I think we're out. Florida's out and about a little bit more than the Northeast, so correct. Still enjoying it in 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 some of those public spaces, but uh, I, I think the town is enjoying it. Um, I know that you, you know, I guess as, as a coach, you're waiting to hear. But what do you think is realistically a good starting date? Do you think it could be January one? If not. What do you hope that next season brings? It, it seems like it would have to be truncated. We don't know about bubbles. Like, how, how would you hope to see, other than return to reality, what, what are you hoping for for next season? Yeah, well, I, I mean, that's, I think that's just I'm, – I'm hoping for a season and uh, something to set up a playoffs. You look at 2012-13, basically the lockout year. We started in middle of January, 48-game season, I think, at that point in the playoffs. So I, I think the NHL has done a good job already with this, and they're – they're working to do something similar or longer than that. And I think they'll be able to do it, which, you know, you don't think about 2013 when Chicago won it as a, a different year. You just, uh, you know, a, a, a different circumstances that, that led to a, a playoffs. Could, could 
some form of a bubble because it had to take a toll. Now it wouldn't be whatever it was, 70 small days in one, you know, basically one space, but could bubbles work next year? Uh, they, they would, I think they would have to figure that out. I think if you went to the players right now and said, you're going to, we need you to spend the next six months in a bubble. I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to happen. No chance. Could you do it for a couple of weeks? And yeah, I, I think there's a way to control it. Um, and hopefully, yeah, hopefully there's, there's a way to do it. I, I, I'm, I'm in a good spot. They just tell me when to show up and right. do your thing. But I, I think the people behind it are organizing it and we'll come up with something. I really appreciate your time here. Um, not everyone gets to live out their dream and you got to do that recently. And uh, I know DC's super proud of you and happy for you and continued success and best of luck. And thanks again. Good. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. Again, many thanks to Jeff Halpern for uh, being open and, and uh, appreciative of him giving me so much time. And I, you know, he's like all of us now too, in that he will wait and hear what's next for the NHL. We don't know. We're hoping for a January, January one start. That seems maybe a bit aggressive. I saw one report uh, saying that it could be camps opening in mid January start of play, not until February. So this is all wide open. And as, Jeff Halpern said, you know, he's in that position where he just kind of waits. Someone will call him and say, here's when we need you and where we need you, and he will go. But um, I just thought it was, uh, it was cool to get him on the podcast because, you know, Caps fans still love him. He's part of the history, and uh, he's lived through the history as a fan, too. And uh, it's funny, too, because um, it was one of the things I wanted to ask him about was those midseason acquisitions of Blake Coleman and Barclay Goodrow, and that that kind of, you know, that mean streak that they brought in. So those, those moves ended up being brilliant moves. And they gave up draft picks, like substantial draft picks to get those guys. Well worth it. Obviously, you win the cup. But even just on the outside looking in pre-cup, you go, that's the type of playoff player Tampa needed. And they addressed it. They went all in on it, much like the Caps did a couple of different times before they actually won it. And uh, I thought those guys were, you know, MVP caliber players. And while Victor Hedman, you know, won the Conn Smythe, deservedly so, uh, I bet you there's people either on the team or within the organization that say those guys were the MVP. Uh, they didn't win the Conn Smythe, but they were the MVPs of that Stanley cup run because, and he quickly pointed it out without me ever asking how important they were. And, um, you know, we, we know here with the caps, how important those role players were because the stars are going to produce to whatever level. Ovi's always produced in the playoffs. Generally Backstrom has done the same. Oshie has done the same. They just never got any production from anywhere else pre cup. Then the cup year, they got production up and down the lineup that's what Tampa finally got. And um, now, as a result, I think a really good head coach. It's, it's just like Barry Trotz again. I think John Cooper is going to get all the uh, accolades he deserves. That's a great coach who probably would have been fired if they fell short of the Stanley Cup this year, just like Barry Trotz. Now, not in the last year of a contract. There was, there's not a – Halpern's not the coach in waiting like Todd Reardon was. But if the situation were the same – you know, it would be tough because um, he was definitely on the hot seat uh, because of playoff failures. And, uh, you know, now they get it done. And um, congratulations to Jeff Halpern. So, again, 
uh, whether it's on the YouTube page or here on the podcast, please subscribe, write a review, leave a rating, send a message. I always try and respond to whatever message comes through on on Twitter, on on the, the YouTube page, the podcast. I love the interaction between fans, and that's why I'm excited about this podcast and excited to be part of Blue Wire. It's a great business uh, and really proud to be in partnership with them now. So again, subscribe, leave a rating, write a review, go do it now. As it's wrap, this podcast is wrapping up, go do it, write a review right now and subscribe and then tell a friend. Looking forward to the next episode. We will talk again. Let's go Caps.